0: Hi, this is my uh, director's commentary for the Nemesis uh, version 2.0 director's cut, and um, Nemesis began in 1986 as an idea I had about a female FBI agent named Alex Rain, who uh, through the course of the story that we had uh, outlined, uh, she would discover sort of who she really is and uh, discovered that there was a whole underlying conspiracy in in the U.S. government and nothing was what it seemed and her belief system was was totally shattered by the end of the movie. And I really liked that idea and wanted to um, carry that forward and uh, developed over the next few years after I'd read William Gibson's work that I really liked the cyberpunk world and hadn't really seen it. Brought to life uh that you know interestingly except for blade runner maybe and um so i wanted to set the story in that world and so that the uh underlying conspiracy could be sort of more cyberpunk and uh, sort of futuristic but it has a very human aspect to the whole story and uh, i wanted um the audience to learn about the world and and about Alex, that she learned about who she was and what she was and what the world was really, uh, you know, what was really going on in the world and how the world really operated that most people in that world just couldn't see. And um, so that developed. And then in uh, I felt I was ready to make it in 1992, and I called uh, over to Ash Shaw at Imperial Entertainment I had liked the movie that ash had done i liked what i heard about him and his sort of youthful energy and and willingness to experiment and be kind of radical and so uh and i knew that the uh, quentin tarantino had worked there and you know that's the kind of environment that they had at imperial it was very you know artistic in a sense as artistic it could as it could be in a sort of an exploitation film factory so um i gave ash a call and we talked a little bit and um I went in and met with them and uh, gave them the script, explained to them what I wanted to do, that Alex at that time was a 13-year-old girl, and I had already cast that part with an actress named Megan Ward, who I just had worked with in Arcade, and uh, I felt that she was really just amazing and and really could bring uh, this character to life in a very humanistic way that would allow the audience even as they found out some terrible things about her and what she was uh, they wouldn't they would still be with her they would have a lot of empathy for her situation and I want and she could play young so that the the age of the character could stay 13 14 years old and um, a lot of the storyline at that time was built around the idea that why this futuristic world would want to use sort of you know teenagers as uh, combatants in this uh, war, cyber war, that was going on behind the scenes. And you, you know, you find out a lot of interesting details about uh, the technology and, and the philosophy that ran the this future world. Um, but anyway, by the end of that meeting, uh, they had read, they had gone through everything. And actually, I think I, I left and left them with the script. And then I... Uh, came back they called me and wanted to meet to discuss it further I went over and that's when they told me that they wanted to use they wanted to change the ma- the hero to a male uh, you know in his 30s and, and that um, they would make the film and pretty much let me make it the way I wanted to except I had to make agree to make that change in casting and uh, it was a really hard decision But I liked the fact they were going to pretty much leave, you know, 99% of the rest of the film alone. And, uh, so, you know, I I liked Ash a lot. I loved his brothers, uh, Sundip and Sunil. Uh, both are, they're all three are film lovers and, and very enthusiastic and, and, uh, down to earth. So I just felt safe there. And so I, um, committed to them and we made the deal to make the movie. And, um it didn't quite go as smooth as I hoped it would, but, you know, those things never really do. I guess personalities come into it. There was a person there that was sort of who had wanted to direct their next big film. And, uh, he had just directed a film called Angel Town with Olivier Gruner and he wanted the next film. And then I just, you know, I I think he resented me just coming in through the door and taking away that next big film that they were going to make. And, um, so that set up a sort of a tough conflict between he and I, and anyway, that's how this whole thing began. And this is, I know, a long prelude to set up to the uh, commentary over the film itself. But we'll begin that now. So I wanted to open the film. Um, it set it primarily in Los Angeles, let the conspiracy come out of a big, urban, sprawling urban environment. And, uh, what we tried to do with, uh, Los Angeles was to make it seem like it was in ruins and almost like a war zone. It was like a, uh, you know, like Beirut or someplace where you have a warring ideologies that are just destroying the entire fabric of society. And I wanted that greenhouse effect to be in full force. So it's very hot and uh, warm and you feel everything's baking and, um, uh, so that was the reason why it starts, we start the film with this orange sky. The film it used to have a, originally had a voiceover by the young girl, but I didn't think Olivier could really do the voiceover very well with his accent, so we kind of eliminated it during the shoot. And I think they went back to some versions of it with another character doing the voiceover because it kind of, you know, these kind of sort of films need that insight. Uh, but when it was done by a fourteen-year-old girl, it really had more power to it because of mm-hmm. her own innocence as she uh, talked about what was happening. Um, and This was kind of a weird scene. We shot this at the, uh, I think it was the Beverly the Beverly Hotel off uh, Beverly Drive just uh, in the middle of West Hollywood and the hotel was very, very cooperative and, and allowed us to roam all through it. It's, You know, and, uh, what we added here for the Virgin 2.0, the one frustrating thing that I had throughout the original shooting was that, you know, there wasn't any CG or special effects that could really bump up the quality of uh, the environment and, uh, you know, all the inner workings of the world because it just wasn't possible to, um, to fabricate it all on a budget and time to shoot it. So, um now the version 2.0 over the next 10 minutes you'll see a lot of additions to the scenes that i originally had envisioned and um anyway that that's the reason why we call it version 2.0 it's like another draft of this movie and um, once technology caught up to the movie in a way so um anyway this hotel was great i used a lot of steady cam in this it's probably the first film I used this much Steadicam, and I really liked it. We had a great Steadicam operator named Mark Moore, who was new to the industry, and I would used him on Kickboxer 2 just for a couple he shots, and I was very impressed with him day. because he had the ability to do oh really God. long, long shots, which required a big, heavy magazine on the Steadicam, and not a lot of Steadicam operators could do take after take or multiple fast shooting. Uh, with that rig on all the time, and he was able to do that. He was an ex-University uh, of Miami football player. I think he was a flanker, and um, so he had, he, you know, he had that athletic ability to be able to get the shots uh, done just, sort of, just physically, get them done. And I really liked Mark. I liked the way he framed action, and George and I were very, very high on him. And they did a great job, and a large part of the credit of the film, I think, the success filmically of of Nemesis, is really due to Mark Moore. Um, we had a great production design team who was faced with you know unbelievable challenges with virtually no budget, and I think they did great. The costumes, I think, were really nice. And um, anyway, I just I, I really liked this location, this hotel. I had stayed there during making of Cyborg. It, mm-hmm editing a cyborg and so I um, was trying to uh, you know get the whole uh, get back to that hotel to use it because I just had roamed around when I was living there during the post-production on cyborg and I really liked that hotel Iceland the funny story is that there was you can see this alley shot here but originally, this was there was going to be a chase through the fish market in downtown Los Angeles, and at that time, you know, the uh, fish market in downtown LA wanted I think they wanted like fifteen or twenty thousand dollars to shoot there, if they allowed it at all, and you know, so I but I really wanted it because I really liked the idea of the camera, the Steadicam, uh, doing this chase through a fish market, and. Um, with all the colors and obviously very exotic and different looking and uh, they uh, but they really forbid it so what we tried to do which I don't recommend to any other filmmaker is we took the we broke the Steadicam down and the camera down to tiny little pieces, individual pieces, that a whole bunch of us males male crew members carried into and down into the basement of the fish market where I knew there was a bathroom and um, we gathered all in the bathroom individually and then once we get down there it's like a spy movie where we built the steady steadicam in the basement and then the and then when we were ready the actors came down and we were going to start the whole thing you know just the actors chasing through there. And uh, we get one shot at it before we get busted. But I figured we could at least get one good run through there uh, with Olivier and uh, the three people chasing, uh, trailing him. So um, that was the idea. And um, of course, as soon as we got to the top of the steps, the security met us and they busted us. There must have been cameras or something. Somehow people knew what we were going to do. Maybe other people tried. And uh, so we all got... You know, kicked out of the place, and so the sequence in the alley, and then you see the uh, the one character calling, calling in on her phone, cell phone, uh, to her people. That had to be done, you know, just in a regular alleyway. It's unfortunate, but um, anyway, we gave it a good shot. But, uh, you know, that's the great thing nowadays about digital cameras. They're so tiny that we probably could have gotten away with that then, because, you know, everybody look at it, and, oh, well, that's just a still camera. Or, you know, some of these HD lens-only cameras are, you know, they're the size of, you know, they're just so tiny, like a pencil. And uh, so there would have been no way to detect what we were doing, other than, of course, you see these actors, and they don't obviously look <laughs> like they're normal, everyday people. But, you know, we could have made a run out of there my thought was even if the security had to chase us out we'd shoot security chasing us but we never even got that far they really stopped us right at the top of the stairs from the basement so um anyway that didn't work out and then we found, i knew that there was a um, a great vast uh and we had used this in the same location in doll man uh, was a vast location that was desolate and Terminator 2 is shot there a lot and the reason I like this location obviously it looks great but beyond that there was really an unrestricted use of pyrotechnics and we didn't have to have all the normal safety concerns uh, that you have. I mean we still were very safe obviously. but. We just, you know, there weren't the restrictions that you have when you're shooting this much pyrotechnics in an environment, the time it takes to, uh, and the cost it takes to pre-rig an action sequence would have been astronomical if we had had to do it, like say, in a regular downtown area or, you know, other areas. And um, this way, we didn't, you know, because it was just basically a condemned uh, pit factory that the EPA had condemned, uh, we were given the freedom to do these action scenes and that's why they look so great. Uh, And um, I know that the special effects commentary for Z was brilliant and a great, great supporter uh, of the director's vision. Uh, I think we emptied out his truck several times of squibs and bombs, you know, all the different uh, bullet hits and things like that. Just every day we were using hundreds and hundreds of them and and a lot of times we would just, because the ground and the environment was so garbagey, we could just put them out there and not even have to hide the wires that that went to each charge. And um, and of course after you blew, you, you know, did a sequence, you didn't have to clean it up because it was just a pit. So it was great. And, um... And then there was these tall fallen buildings, which created a little bit of a problem because we had to take a uh, like a lift cherry picker up to the top of them. Barely made it to the lower edge of the building, and then everybody had to get off. And some of the, the actors, you know, some had some fear concerns or vertigo, and, and George has serious vertigo, so he could never really make it up to the top. And so that's where Mark Moore came in, and Mark was fearless, going over to the edge, I and mean, everybody was safetyed off, but. It's still, you know, when you look over the edge of a building like that, uh, you know, it can, it can affect your mind. And, um, so we kept the crew minimal up there, and we shot it pretty quick, and, uh, went off, nobody got hurt, you know, you know, just, uh, was smooth. And then we had, uh, this girl, the girl in a really short skirt, uh, blue, and she was tremendous. She was this fearless. She's a actress from Croatia, and, um, she just really, you know, look. if you look at the way she's firing the gun and stuff, it's like she's shot before and she's just a gutsy, hard-ass girl and um, and yet she's really gorgeous but she's got this no-nonsense no attitude and fearless. She starts climbing that uh, rebar up and, you know, with no pads or anything, no no gloves and, you know, it's. It, we didn't ask her to do it. She just did it because she said, oh, so this character goes to the roof and I said, yeah. And so she just was going to climb to that roof with no safety harness or anything. I mean, she was out of her mind with how, how committed she was. And um, I worked with her later on Nights and on she several other she movies. Of she was great. I, just, I really like her right. a lot. And um, <laughs> So anyway, that's, that's that's the reason we're shooting this. Is a Ki- it used to be a Kaiser steel factory. And uh, a lot of the ruins were there still from Terminator you 2. And... Um, don't know who I- It was just one of the best locations I've ever shot in. I just absolutely loved it. And, you know, everything went well, and we were really happy with how it all went. And, um, although I don't know how happy the crew was, because it was a pretty scummy place to shoot. A lot of toxic elements and and bad uh, air, and there were no flies there, no bugs, nothing, no birds, nothing. (laughs) It was the weirdest thing. None of you is
1: human. Never was. You have no idea what's going on here, what this is really all about. When I'm through with you, there's no way they'll be able to put you back together. I'm here to tell you, you're finished. You lose. Adios. Fluid you're, 18. 18. you're not really human're really human mostly machine you're not really human you're mostly machine you're not really human. you're not really human anymore are you or are you or
0: are you uh, One of the things I wanted to do with this with the film was to uh, visually frame uh, a lot of these events in sort of the old old world natural environments. And um, one of them is a Mexican village we found in Tucson, Arizona. So we went from LA to Tucson, Arizona to shoot the standing back lot tourist attraction, Mexican village. And um, I think it works great. It's where Alex goes to hide out and recuperate. Then you have the sand dunes and, and where he runs past, you know, nothing, nothing uh, futuristic about it whatsoever. And I think that's part of the, the story is that Alex, even though he's becoming more and more sort of cyber and, and non-organic, um, he has this longing to go to these organic places to, um, you know, spiritually. And that's the, that's the human side of him. And he goes where we would go. And also um, to enhance that framing device, visually you know we shot in the yuma territorial prison the sand dunes were in yuma just outside yuma and there's really great fresh one of the producers on the film to allow me to drag the uh, production company at great expense to all these different locations just generally to shoot like you know a few shots and then we go to the next city and it was not inexpensive and not you know it was logistically complex so um it was really great that they allowed that, and uh, he, sub- Ash supported that, and I think it really enhances the film. And then, of course, Shang Lu, where the bulk of the um, story takes place, is actually Hilo, Hawaii. And, you know, I know when I was first pitching the story, they were all shaking their heads, going, wait a minute, we're going to go to Tucson to shoot this one little Mexican village, and then we're going to go to Yuma to shoot the sand dune and a uh, prison from the... 1800s, and then we're going to go to a. Uh, we're going to go to Hawaii to shoot jungles, and you know, it's all of that was the Chuck ju- was the exact opposite of normally where you would put a futuristic film. But I thought it really added a lot, and it kind of highlighted the the conflicts in the story really nicely. And um, you know, we were still able to do a lot of action. It's just that the environment that the action took place in was. Was different, and it really was about Alex trying to get back to his organic self, and was more comfortable. And, and the cyborgs got less and less comfortable. Tim Thomerson and Brian James and the company got less and less comfortable in the in a natural world. Um, you know, their surveillance and everything was uh, hindered, and you know the natural world in some cases fought back and were allies, inadvertently, for Alex. Alex was sort of on his own turf, in a way, a human turf. And that, Anyway, that was my idea of it, and that's why we were in all these places. Not bad, but a little
1: sloppy, Alex. Looks like you're ready to go back to work. The cyber transplants have really taken to you. Can't tell what's real and what's synthetic. You'll be all machine soon. Shut up, Pam. Pack up, Alex. Rehab's over. Farnsworth wants you back online. I quit and you tell Farnsworth that. And if he doesn't like it, I know he will find me and let me know. To stub the pain. Nothing is mine anymore. Nothing's been mine since I met you, Jared. I didn't force you to enlist.
0: John Farnsworth didn't give me much choice, did you?
1: We got you out of prison. That was the deal. Anyway, one of the
0: real <laughs> blessings of this film was the cast. Um, okay. you know, besides Olivier Gruner, we had Thomas, uh, Tim Thomerson, Brian oh. James, both of whom are very experienced, yes. and you know they bring a lot of that experience into each character that they play. Uh, they have great senses of humor and um you know, they find sort of the edges of the character uh, also we had thomas jane in one of his early roles and when we see that scene i'll explain a little bit about, more about uh, thomas's uh, participation and um, we had deborah shelton merle kennedy both of them were terrific i mean really all the talent in the film was just probably the best I've ever had and this is probably the last film where I was able to have um, you know across the board this much talent available to me so um, anyway the uh, also you'll notice some of the pigeon that's spoken in Shang Lu and again I wanted a I just wanted a sort of an old-world uh, so you get a sense that the old world sort of resisting the cyber-futuristic uh, aspects and, um, you know, it just created more conflict when you have the you know, all that Pigeon Hawaiian sort of slang being spoken. Um, I think it, you know, it just gave it more color than you normally see in these movies. The other thing that I uh, was really impressed with, you know, with all with well, like Olivier and Merle, and, and certainly Deborah Shelton was the physical training that they all embarked upon to uh, get themselves in, into sort of cyber shape for the film. Um, and Deborah, you know, knew that her scene was going to be totally nude, so she really worked hard. And I think it really shows in the film. It's one of the great things in the movie is, is Deborah's body is how fit and conditioned and. That. She was, and, you know, she's a very beautiful woman anyway. And then same with Merle. I was very impressed with her work ethic and uh, dedication to making Max Impact not only a colorful character, but also a... Powerfully fit one. On so it's believable that a young girl could handle this. You That's kind of that the trans- precursor or the leftover right. echo from the, the Alex Rain concept of a 13, 14 year old girl. Anyway, it was a great cast, and um, He'll be here. They, were, they were very easy to work with. Well. Uh, and we had a lot of, of locations, a lot of travel. I know that Olivier and uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Merle had the, a lot of the uh, volcano See? sequences, which was at 12,000 feet, and Nothing and, and feet I had to have them down. run, and it's amazing they could run at all and not pass out at that altitude, you know, which is at the very top of the volcanoes on the Big Island of Hawaii. So that was great, and, and um, here. the I think the voiceover that was used, oh, I never really saw the release version because I was... I got removed from the film uh, right after I did a rough cut, the first assembly of the film. So I never, you know, I just had some bad feelings about seeing it. But uh, I know that Michelle Monaghan was the.
1: used to be one of my best ops. Get him out of there. You're too valuable to let go. I knew someday I might need you, so we allowed you to retire. How was it? Desperate, huh? You're only good at one thing, Alex. Hey! You see that now, I think. I hope you do, because I need your skills again. And what makes you think I would help you? Because when they put you back together last week, they added a little something to your heart. A bomb. Enough to make it disappear. Um,
0: One of the truly great things about Nemesis for me personally was being able to work with all these actors that I had worked with prior they made my job so much easier nicholas guess plays Julian, which is great and um tim thomerson and brian james of course tim people associate with more like good guys and i thought it was interesting that he played a ruthless bad guy in this not even a human
1: and um, i like that
0: and uh, i just love this uh, human prison it was not that easy to shoot, or a lot of restrictions, because it's an open tourist attraction. So we had to work around the tourists and work around the hours of the tours. And but I thought it looked great. And Olivia had to wear yes, had to wear that long wig. Uh, there were a lot of wigs in the show. <laughs> but you know, he's synthetic, so he wouldn't have real hair, theoretically. But. Um, Anyway, I really liked uh, the textures that we got here and I think, again, a lot of steady cam action with Mark you know, Moore shooting and George Moradi and the DP. What, uh, what he got visually was just remarkable and um, just really love this location a lot. I think we, had to sh- we arrived there and had to shoot like shoot it in like a four, four hour window and get out of there. So um, heart, huh? we didn't spend a lot of time shooting this, these sequences, but you know, it's, I figured it was worth shooting them, having to shoot them really fast, rather than not having them in the film at all, the look and the location. Anyway, I just thought it made it more exotic and uh, more interesting.
1: He'll be here in a moment. I think he accepted the story. By the time he learns the truth, it'll be too late. You still believe he can manage this? He won't have to do much. If he can walk, that's enough. Besides, Jared won't let anyone else get near her. There's no guarantee he'll try to find Jared. He won't have a choice. I've sent Billy Moon to Shang Lu. Alex won't have to find Jared. Billy will make sure she finds him.
0: It's great, Hilo is a great place to shoot because people are so nice and we, you know, I would just see somebody in the street and say, hey, I want to use that person as this character or this extra and, you know, they they would all agree to it. Do it right away, especially there's an old lady who shot Sven uh, on the street when he tries to harass her uh, just to be mean. She turns around, pulls out that uh, that gun, and I was worried because when she fired the blanks, you know, she was so old
1: and so fragile
0: that I was afraid that the the recoil from the pistol would break her wrists. And um, she was fine. She said, Oh, yeah, I just got to shoot him, I'd be glad to. And she emptied a clip into Sven, <laughs> and gl- and happily. And uh, she was great. So those are the kind of things, bonuses that we got by being in Hilo, Hawaii. And like I said, we used to teamsters for some henchmen as well, because they were so, you know, they're big, and they look e- ethnic, and uh, they're the nicest guys in the world. And um, it's great, I just, you know, It was a complex shoot, but it was a pleasure also to be able to go to all these different areas and not have to cheat anything. I like the sort of ethnic flavor that uh, Hilo gave us. Um, One interesting thing is that we, basically a lot of the interior sets are all shot in L.A. and only the, mainly the exteriors are shot in in, uh, Hawaii because I knew our time in Hawaii would be limited, I knew we had a lot of different locations to hit in the course of a shoot day, and so it was just easier to do all the you know in, interiors in uh, LA and Fontana. Um, the amazing thing, this is the, one of the most memorable sequences I think I'm known for is this scene with um, Deborah Shelton, Thomas Shane and Olivier uh, in the hotel room where they have to, um, first is Deborah, totally nude, um, working with uh, Thomas Jane, who saw that she was going to be totally nude, and he decided to go totally nude. So it was a really weird thing. And when we had the stage to fight, I think Bob Brown, who was basically, it was the first thing he ever coordinated was a little nervous because you know nobody was wearing any clothes, and so I think it unnerved him a little bit. And um, during the fight between Deborah and Thomas, she accidentally hit him in the cheek and split open his cheek, and he started bleeding. And rather than go off to get treated, he wanted to use that, use the blood. He's a very, very intense actor. And um, even then, you knew he was special and different because just the, his whole approach to his work and everything. Like, it's pretty amazing. And of course, Deborah was stunning. She'd worked so hard in uh, leading up to the shoot to get herself in the top shape. And she knew what I had wanted and what I wanted Eric Stern, like the trainer, to get her to. And she put, she dieted and she did the whole thing. And, you know, for someone that at her age to transform her, Body into that was remarkable and it added a lot of power and presence, I think, to her. So I I just thought it was brilliant. I was very fortunate to to have uh, Yuji Okamoto in the film because we couldn't afford to really get anywhere near his normal rate.
1: And, um,
0: you know, it was just really nice of him to agree to do the film for.
1: Well, we could afford However, to pay him, and uh,
0: 10, you know, he, and he brought it, he gave it 10, us all, he did not, you know, he, he did phone it in, even though we weren't paying him, and is um, a he added so much to the film, that uh, always be thankful, and we ended up doing Brain Smasher after this with him, and Mean Guns, and uh, several others, so I really, really like Yuji uh, as a person, he is a great, uh, great artist, and I'm glad that a lot of the actors who none of the actors really in the film could we afford to pay what they normally would get paid, but they all agreed to to do it for what we could, and none of them, you know, uh, cut back on the prep time or their own prep for the film and the characters. They really, you know, like Merle Kennedy working out uh, on her own time. Uh, where normally a production would pay an actor to uh, do production-sanctioned training, but they all—they all did it out of because they're artists first, I think, and I was uh, really fortunate they liked me and they liked the project. Easy enough to find out, no? Hey,
1: what's the matter, you? More of their drugs if Farnsworth is going to kill me tomorrow i want to be clear i hope jared really hurts lapd i really do she can sell her data to the dog boys for like you
0: things about Deborah Sheldon was um, during the scene where she was totally nude it was uh, so easy because she just saw the nudity as another costume and it, you know it'd be like if she was put on a coat she would have the same low-key attitude uh, about it and um you know, made it made everybody, put everybody at ease because obviously when you have a full nude scene like that, people, you know, it's a little uh, invasive on, uh, you feel a little that the actress or actors are vulnerable. But And also Thomas Jane was so gung ho about it all that, you know, it made it very easy for all of us and uh, comfortable. and. I think it's a great scene. I, I really wish Deborah had done more. I think she had the ability to do more. I think she got stuck in the TV sort of thing that, although you know I know it was steady income, but I think it sort of stunted her de- development as an actress because I think she had a lot more to give. She was, it was in her to do it, to do a, a lot more and uh, deeper and more complex characterizations. I hope I get to work with her one more time.
1: Please don't do this. Damn it. We had a goddamn motherfucking deal. I'm your fucking partner in this. I fucking set you up as Shang I fucking help your ass. Come on, we had a deal, you fat little suckin' bitch. You helped a little too much, Billy. How does an out of town hustler like you get the inside scoop on undercover cops and terrorists? Answer me that, huh? How does it happen? <laughs> oh, I just trying to help you, man. Too bad this sense you read differently, Billy. Too bad for you it said you were LAPD. angie said room 16. service.
0: Yeah, how's it, Well, one thing that was um, great in terms of, you know, the cast. Obviously, Kerry uh, uh, Tagawa was tremendous. He lives in Hawaii, so he understood the pigeon. And um, the uh, henchman with Kerry here in the room, are actually our Teamster drivers, were uh, the nicest guys, and um, they really, you know, got into being uh, Carrie's uh, henchmen, and uh, I think they look great. And it's just part of the resourcefulness you have to have when you do these low-budget films is, you know, yet you, you kind of, when you look at the crew, you always try to look at them and say, can I use this face? Can I use this type somewhere in the film? where, you know, we don't have to pay for them to be there. We only have to pay for them on the day that they do something outside their job classification. Yeah, that's right. And these guys were great. And they were tremendous drivers and just all around production experts. They got us through, I don't know how many locations in Hilo we shot, but they moved us smoothly and very effectively.
1: I didn't have any choice. Sad, yeah. At least I'm still alive. Won't make any difference, you know, care, brother. Just make sure you stay away from me in case your bum get accident. <gasps> Kill all of you, motherfuckers. Lean, come. Let's go get plate lunch. Mm.
0: Hey, Julian. Who the fuck are these guys?
1: Who cares?
0: series of shots that show you the inserts that were shot at the beginning of the shoot uh, before we knew exactly which locations it would be or who would be, you know, which yeah, hand would be something would be in or what the lighting would be like. Uh, gives you an idea of the, the insert shots, though. Uh, Vince Klein and I have worked together, I don't know, probably 15, 20 movies. Uh, Vince has got a great look. He's always very eager and, and um, we shot, actually, this scene of Vince getting shot as part of the inserts. So we just shot all of Vince's coverage and, uh, you know, because it had makeup effects and stuff. And I really wanted to cover it well. It and I knew we couldn't if you we know. want to wait to shoot some of these things later on in the shoot when things would start getting a little more hectic and shots have to get thrown away. So I was really glad we did this during the uh, insert shooting and um, so we were able to have it nicely covered. Jared said you
1: were
0: someone I could trust. So anyway, one of the um, primary conditions of doing the film in Imperials, uh, I wanted to shoot uh, the uh, all the inserts at the beginning of the film, the first three days. Normally inserts are done you know, as you're shooting a scene or at the end of the film. Cause it's easier to see the entire scene and match the insert to either the motion or the action or the lighting, um, or the perspective, uh, of that insert. Cause the inserts are generally like a, you know, bullet on the table gets picked up or a gun drops to the ground or that kind of stuff. And, um, I wanted to shoot them all at the very beginning because normally in the films up to that point, I always never got a you know I never got a chance to shoot them, so it always left big holes in a lot of the scenes, made them kind of editorially clunky oh and narratively clunky. So um, I insisted that we shoot all the uh, uh, inserts at the beginning. This one producer who thought I was out of my mind because you know how could you know how to light. Uh, for, you know, yeah. say, I think it was about 500 insert shots. So how would I know how to light all these sets that haven't been built or haven't been shot in yet and match all this action that hasn't been performed, uh, that would make these insert shots work. But I had it pretty mapped out in my mind. So, uh, we were able to get all the inserts in the first couple days. And, um, you know, we did shoot tight close-ups of, you know, like, uh, a capsule rolling along the floor or that kind of stuff so it was very strange and but we did it and i shot in a little tiny guard shack um which was not easy to light or control but it had the right sort of wall and floors i thought we would have the rest of the movie and um worked out great we brought dirt in for the dirt inserts and you know, window, dressing for window. So, and you know, we had no idea yet because we hadn't shot the scene. I think we hadn't even fully cast the film yet, so we didn't even know what the hands and the feet and things like that would look like. But it all worked out. And I did get all the inserts, and uh, it's the first film where I felt really satisfied with that, although it really set up uh, a lot of conflict with this producer that, that Imperial had on it, on the show. And... Uh, You know, he just thought I was insane. And as we moved into the um, action parts of it, I was moving at such a fast clip when we were shooting all this action and stuff. I had multiple cameras. Like, I would leapfrog one camera ahead of the next camera, and I would just tell them what to get ready for. And then once we were done with the scene in one location, I would break that down and tell the actors, follow me, and I'd sprint over to the next setup somewhere else, and I... The actors, the crew had to run, keep up, get there ahead of me and or with me and um, start shooting within a few minutes of arriving at the next setup. So, again, it, it made it for seem like it was very chaotic. Although, you know, for in my mind, I could see everything going according to plan.
1: You know I've got an encoded explosive in my heart. that'll scramble the signals they try to send the bomb you're safe for now as they decode the jammer in your shoulder the lights go out when all five are gone boom why did you need me jared said you were the best that you'd have a better chance of making it why are you helping jared i want a matter I want it to mean something that I lived. Isn't that what life's all about? They are trapped. Sitting ducks. Ah. Team 3, report. Team 3 set. Upon your command, lockup will commence in 15 seconds. We can get out the back way, through the bathroom window. Go on, get out, I'll cover you.
0: famous sequences in my career really is the uh, shoot through the floor gag that uh, we came up with. Um uh, and what the original genesis of that was because on a location scout I noticed that one of the buildings there had a exterior wood staircase that was very sturdy, uh, you know, industrial staircase that was wood though, with floors. So on the scout, I asked the uh, project designer Colleen Sarah if, if we were to build, you know, like platforms off each of those uh, pla- uh, landings on the staircase, um, could she build? Would it be, you know, strong enough to build a set there? And she said, "Yeah, she thought it could." And then there was a. Uh, construction guy with us and he thought, yeah, that it was structurally pretty uh, sound and if we could tie to the um, staircase that it would be pretty solid and safe. And so as I was driving back from the scout, I was thinking, well, what could we do with that? And then I come up with this idea of that I always had wanted to do which is to shoot through the floors to escape. And um, so they built, they two walls set off of the staircase, each floor was a landing of the staircase, and it allowed us to shoot it fairly easily because of the, you know, we had a, basically a, a sturdy camera platform, uh, and, um, we put a camera uh, uh, an IMO, 35mm IMO, Bell and Hell IMO, on uh, Olivier, so he, one aimed at, uh, his face as he drops down through the floors, and um and one aimed at uh, bob brown the stunt uh doubles feet as he f- did the actual smashing through the floors and shooting and so um you know we did it we did first the obviously just the uh all the lead-ups to it and then we did the uh, floor and we shot it floor by floor level by level we started at the top and worked our way down the staircase to each floor, and uh, Terry Frizzy did a great job in in rigging the and scoring the uh, floor and ceilings to each level, so it was fairly easy for uh, Bob to smash through. Both Bob and Olivier were on cables, so they were, it was you know it was safe. Although there's a lot of debris that uh, Bob had to move through, and uh, it went, you know went off really well. I didn't. You know, after we were done with it, I didn't think much of it. It, uh, There were a couple parts of it that I just wasn't that thrilled with. I wanted it to be where he would come through the ceiling, you know, interrupting the henchmen, and they all would be looking surprised at this guy coming through the ceiling, shooting. And then he would shoot, blow them all away. And I think we only got to do that with one guy in in the um, thing, because it just uh, was too physically difficult to get people up there and... um, safety them off and we had to have a lot of cherry pickers and cranes to get people up and down but um definitely one of the most memorable sequences and it was only possible because we were shooting at fontana so it made it cost effective so we did a um a shootout which is in my mind the, one, one of the best action scenes that i've done uh in terms of a complete scene i just i got almost everything i wanted i got billions of blanks going off automatic weapons and uh so. hundreds and hundreds of squib hits this is a specially built set in the middle of a parking lot at fontana and because we were using 50 caliber machine guns to shoot with uh, they all had to be belt fed with blanks and um one of the clips on the belt that hold the bullets in place as it goes through the machine gun uh, broke off and actually got shot through the barrel of one of the 50s and hit our assistant cameraman in the throat. Uh, luckily, it didn't hit, uh, you know, his jugular or windpipe, and uh, he was okay. But it was very scary. Even though we had this big uh, plywood barrier in front of us, he, you know, it peeked around to make sure the camera lights were all on so they were all running. And, um, you know, the, that piece went right through the wall of the set and uh, hit him in the throat. Luckily, not his eye or anything. But anyway, that, that was a very intense scene. I was thrilled with it. And uh, the stunt guys were tremendous to be in, even Deborah, to be in that environment with that many things going off. And for Deborah stunt double, who had all those squibs tied to her body, it was just staggering to me that uh, they could do it.
1: Jared, can you hear me? Welcome to Shang Lu. Is Julian with you? No. Why did you turn against LAPD? You believed in Not against LAPD. Against Commissioner Farnsworth. So he's not the nicest guy in the whole world that he's... No. Commissioner Farnsworth has been replaced. What do you mean replaced? I just saw him down in Baja. You saw a cyborg duplicate. He's dead. Killed a month ago. A cyborg's one of the real one blessings one on, on
0: Nemesis cell cell was that I, the cell first cell movie I made with Bob Brown, who's now a big, you, you know, big, big movie Hollywood uh, stunt Eeyore. coordinator, and um, but he was a stuntman on that. He was actually Olivier's stunt double. And um, when we were shooting this scene, he dislocated his shoulder, uh, flipping off that car. When he hit the ground to roll, he dislocated his shoulder. And we used a shot where he came up and still kept firing even though his shoulder was dislocated. And um, anyway, he couldn't work any further, But and the stunt coordinator, Ronnie Rondell, came up to me and says, well, what do you want to do? And, you know, and, uh, at first I didn't understand what he meant, and I guess you know normally when a stuntman's injured like that, they just get replaced. And I liked Robbie a lot. I liked his idea. I liked his skill sets. You know, he had—he uh, was a high diver and and uh, a high jumper, and, and he just had a lot of great ideas about how to achieve uh, the action that I was envisioning. And. Um, So I kept him on. I actually hired a stunt double for Bob. And, um, you know, again, production thought I was crazy. Even the stunt coordinator, though, he thought it was very nice that you kept Bob on salary, even though he couldn't do anything. But I wanted Bob's console. I wanted him on the set. I wanted him to be seeing what we were doing. And I wanted him there to give me feedback on how to do certain things, and maybe better ways to do things, because Bob's one of the most creative stunt minds I've ever, ever worked with. And um, so we kept them on. Obviously production wasn't happy, because uh, it was, you you know, it's not cheap to keep a stuntman on, because they get paid a lot more than a regular like, daily for an actor. And we hired, we hired I think I ended up hiring like two or three stunt doubles to replace Bob, to do the things that Bob would, would, was capable of doing during the shoot. That just shows you how versatile and, and skilled Bob was. And he to this day he remains one of my best friends, and it's great. It was a great place to shoot because people are so nice, and we, you know, I would just see somebody in the street and say, "Hey, I want to use that person and as this character, this extra," and you know, they would they would all agree to do it right away. Especially there's an old lady who shot Sven, uh on a street when he tries to harass her uh, just to be mean. She turns around, and pulls out that uh, that gun and i was worried because when she fired the blanks mm-hmm. you know she was so old and so fragile that mm-hmm. i was afraid that the, the recoil from the Alex? pistol would break her wrists and um she was fine she said oh yeah i just got to shoot him i'd be glad to and she emptied a clip into this <laughs> and gl- and happily and uh, she was great so those are the kind of things bonuses that we got by being in Hilo, Hawaii, and like I said, we used to Teamsters for some henchmen as well because they were so, you know, they're big, and they look eth- ethnic, and um, they're the nicest guys in the world, and
1: um,
0: it's great, I just, you know, it was a complex shoot, but it was a pleasure also to be able to go to all these different areas and not have to cheat anything.
1: And what's wrong, and you care.
0: Yeah. What it's worth, Alex. I loved you. Yeah. Well, Usually at the beginning of a uh, film I'm going to shoot, it, I'll have a pretty good idea of the color palette that I want to use it's based on the scouting and, and just how I see the film. And um, my instructions to both the art department and to costumes Even props and uh, makeup. Because we dyed a lot of people's hair to match this palette that I I wanted to use. And I wanted to stay in earth tones. Sort of the anti-futuristic concept uh, carried all the way through to the colors of it. Everything that we see. I wanted everything to feel very uh, organic and real and uh, warm. Uh, Not... Like uh, you know, you would expect a cyborg movie to have colder, you know, blue steel and that kind of stuff. But it was—I really wanted everything to have a a warm earth tone. Uh, Again, it it fits in with Alex's need to try to keep some part of his humanity or or what's organic uh, alive and not become totally like uh, Tim Thomerson and the other cyborgs, totally cybergenic. So, um, anyway, I think that the color scheme by the costumers and the art department was great. Uh, it, it achieved even better than I'd hoped. I don't know if people notice it, really, but I notice it. And I guess that's the most important thing. I'm coming to get you, Alex. Um, again, uh, Fontana, which was our prime, Primary location. Uh, we, throughout the whole film, we jump back and forth between Fontana locations in Hawaii and vice versa. Most of the Hawaii locations were exteriors, and we used uh, Fanta- Fontana for the interiors. We also grabbed the big slide um, that you'll see later, uh, where they slide down. Alex uh, slides down on the back with. Um, uh, Tom Matthews on top of him, and they have they struggle and fight as they f- went to go down this uh, slide covered in mud. And um, it was kind of weird because we did a camera shoot with the cameraman in front of them as they came down the chute. But because we had put I wanted all this mud and water on there, it accelerated their speed so fast that actually at each bump they would kind of go airborne. And we kind of knocked out the uh, the camera operator because when he hit the bottom, even though there was no paths down there, he didn't, he hit it in an awkward way because he flew off the end of the slide and then the way he landed, knocked itself out. So it was a, it was a tricky shoot, you know, it's kind of a weird, you you know, thing to come up with. But I don't know why. I I just had seen these slides around uh, Southern California and I went, why don't we rent one? and make that part of the gag is, you know, and dirty it up and make it look industrial, like it should belong there. And I think it's a pretty cool fight. You'll notice that the uh, henchman on top, which was doubling, the stuntman doubling for Tom Matthews, you'll see his left hand do some weird movements because the squib that went off actually gave him a like a second-degree burn all over his wrist. So it was a tricky sequence, you know. It didn't seem like much, but it was. small island, so it can literally take, you know, like an hour or more to get to certain locations, and so uh, the production wasn't very happy with me, but I selected all these spots for little pieces of scenes uh, like this talk between um, uh, Max Impact and Alex, and uh, I wanted this particular coastal e- uh, cliff edge, and it was a steady cam and <laughs> it's a long dialogue scene, and Mark Moore had to hold that steady cam, when we came to the final uh, camera position, he had to plant, stay, and keep that camera steady for minutes. And I could see his sweat just pouring down his face and his, and his arms were quivering, although none of the vibration, his hand didn't quiver, but his arms, his biceps, his shoulders were all quivering involuntarily because it was so hard to stable, keep the camera stable for such a long period of time and it's a long scene so it required a big thousand foot mag so it's very heavy and um, again only someone like Mark Moore could have done it the other thing that's pretty cool is that you'll notice that we didn't light very much uh, George ended up using a lot of natural light on just some shiny boards and white cards to fill in a little bit on the close-ups but that's why the look of the film is, is the way it is is that we also use chocolate filters because most things that are shot in Hawaii, in that latitude, have a blue-green sort of cast to everything. That's just the way the sunlight filters there. I don't know if it's a but it's a reflection of the jungle reflecting into the clouds and then it reflects back down. So everything, if you look at a lot of more amateur stuff or uncorrected material from Hawaii, you'll notice that there's a slight blue-green edge to it. And growing up there, I was always aware of that and I hated that. So we use these very intense chocolate filters to warm everything up. And I think it made everything richer. We also use specific film stocks that George had tested for the best result. For shooting in Hawaii, so we had you know sort of like these this custom rolls of film just for Hawaii, and uh, it looks good. It looks rich. We were able to retain a lot of the detail and the richness and color without having that blue-green cast on everything, which I just couldn't stand.
1: Especially when they turn renegade and no tell nobody. <laughs> so you know about Farnsworth. It's the information age, brother. Relax, Alex. If I, like, steal this from you, you never wake up, brah.
0: Wants you to help me uh, this was uh, the interior of a abandoned uh, power plant outside Hilo and um, it's one of the few sort of interiors that we especially industrial interiors that we used in Ho- we shot in Hawaii instead of uh, in Fontana I just thought it was just great you know the one thing is is that when things are abandoned and go to decay in a tropical climate. It's different than things that obviously decay, like in Fontana. It it just decays into beautiful textures and colors and rust and corrosion, and I really liked it a lot. And um, we did light this. This is one of the lit scenes. And uh, I think George did a great job. I believe we changed stocks Uh, film stocks when we shot interiors in Hawaii Um, I think we went to Kodak for the interiors we're using Fuji maybe for the exteriors or maybe the reverse of that I know we wanted to use Agfa but I don't think Agfa was uh, commonly available any longer but um, anyway I I think George did a beautiful job like he always does and he's really underrated in the beauty that his eye captures. And um, I'm certainly very grateful Ah. to him. He's one of my best collaborators. No, die on me! Come on, cowboy, Andy, send me help. I
1: thought you wanted me dead.
0: Later. Right now, I need you make others dead. <laughs> <laughs> well.
1: What's at That disc, you son? No. <laughs> <laughs> You're the last of the Manji-san. No more Hammerhead bosses. I want you to die knowing you've
0: lost.
1: It's over for our
0: humans. Some one of the great things places about places. this Fantana location no was um, I'll it right here in they here. were doing a lot of demolition of it, so besides all the rubble you. and you know things that we could use to give the film great visual texture, we also were t- able to take advantage of um, their demolition of the site. And one of them was this giant tower, which is I think three or four stories tall, Yeah all you know, uh, iron. And um, I saw them cutting it, and they were seemed like they were getting pretty close to the end of cutting it, so it would drop. And so I went to Terry for the special effects, and, I, and with uh, Ronnie Rondell, is, uh, the coordinator, we discussed how we could get that falling tower simulated like it got hit with bullets, and then. Cause the tower to f- almost crush our heroes. And, uh, you know, so the, both Ronnie and Terry agreed that it, it could be done safely. And um, so Terry and Ronnie went over and talked to the people that were doing the demolition, and they agreed to let us, they would give us a call just before they were going to put the burn, you know, well, cut the last piece of metal to drop it. And, um, Terry would put gasoline bombs around the base of it to look like it was a, you know, explosive bullets hitting that caused the tower to collapse. And, um, we didn't use, obviously, the actors to sprint out from under it. And, uh, you know, we, so they called us on the radio. We went over. Terry put his bombs in place, got hot. Um, Ronnie put his people in place, his stunt people in place safely because he had calculated where the tower would hit, the, you know, the edge of the tower, the final piece of it. So that would, from that point on, it was safe. And he may have put a marker there for the stunt guys to see that. And my fear was they would run and trip, obviously, and then they'd be caught underneath this damn thing. So, but it went off without a hitch. And um, if you want to kill me, just do it. I remember my uh, you me, Max. longtime producer, Tom Kernelski's when he saw the tower starting to come down, he just went hysterical and just started screaming for Are all the cameras on. Turn on the cameras, turn on the cameras. They were all on but <laughs> it was you know, it was pretty tense and you get, you know, adrenaline rolling and and um, I remember him being under particular stress of doing that scene because of the risks involved. But it was great. The only negative, I guess, was that the fire bombs that we had set off uh, ignited something that was whatever it was in that tower to begin with. And so the fire burned and burned and burned, I think, for weeks, and um, I know the local fire company and the uh, EPA were not happy about that, but, you know, we didn't know what was inside. And, you know, we knew it wasn't going to be explosive. Wasn't it wasn't. They had fumes or anything. It was just. The, it were the chemicals that was lining the inside of the the residue lining inside the tower caught fire, and they couldn't put it out. So um, anyway, so that was one of the great things about the, this Fontana location. And then, of course, this I kept mixing Fontana with Hawaii. It's just before this we see in Hawaii. Uh, Olivier's character, Alex, and Viral's uh, character uh, running away from Tim Thomerson. And uh, one of the places in Huala that we found that we could do this was where they had these abandoned quonset huts. And um, so we put, Terry loaded a place up with bombs and all these explosions would start going off and our you know heroes leap down from the uh Quonset huts to the ground and kept running behind them you know all hell's breaking loose and again this is one of those situations because it was a condemned area we could set off these kind of explosions and you know the debris and the mess we caused we, all, we really just had to walk away because it was all being cleared out anyway so that was great and then the next uh, part of it part of the scene was in this um Bamboo forest. Now the bamboo was sort of protected, but I it would be great to see all these bamboo trees blown apart by the bullet hits. So we made a deal with this. I think it was with the county of Hawaii too. We would be allowed to uh, drop a certain amount of trees, and um, we had to mark them and Terry, you know, squib those trees. So during the chase through that little jungle in the bamboo forest, you see all these bullet hits on the bamboo trees, not them down, and um, the last part of that, that chase really was the, where they used the uh, slide for life across a ravine to an old, um, like, plantation house, and uh, so that was rigged nice and safe, and uh, you know, it was, it, there was just a lot, that whole chase sequence was very involved, and not to mention the fact that we had to travel to locations you know different locations all around the Big Island of Hawaii
1: and uh, we even
0: went to um, where those big wind wind machines that you see blowing they were shot down at South Point which is the southernmost uh, point of the United States and um, I just thought it was great I love those wind machines and so anyway I just was trying to take advantage of everything I could including the volcanoes Um, to give the setting a much more interesting and different look. You know, it's not the look you find in, um, you know, most futuristic movies, which are either desert or they're, um, you know, urban, uh, downtown alleys and things like that. So I was really, you know, trying to go to the most interesting areas, which stage the most interesting action we could within, within our schedule and means. Uh, But that went off without a hitch, and uh, it's we've got a lot of energy today don't we alex what happened to our speed loading jungle? so nice and we you know i, I would just see somebody in the street and say hey i want to use that person in, Time, as this character show, or this extra and you know You're they would they would all agree to do it right away especially there's an old lady You're who shots like then uh on the street a street when and he and tries to harass her uh, just to be mean point. she turns around, oh. and pulls out that uh that gun and I was worried because when she fired the blanks you know she was so old and so fragile that I was afraid that the, the recoil from the pistol would break her wrists and um, she was fine she said oh yeah I just gotta shoot him I'd be glad to and she emptied a clip into Sven. <laughs> and event and happily and uh, she was great so those are the kind of things Bonuses that we got by being in Hilo, Hawaii. And like I said, we used to teamsters for some henchmen as well because they were so, you know, they're big and they look ethnic and um, they're the nicest guys in the world. And um, it's great. I just, you know, it was a complex shoot, but it was a pleasure also to be able to go to all these different areas and not have to cheat anything. Um, of course, the last, one of the big last parts of that chase was the, where they go over the waterfalls, and it was the, it was the high waterfall there outside Eno. And um, the trick of it was, though, that the Alex character, as he flipped off the edge of the rocks and uh, tra- you know, travel started traveling down the, fire, down the uh, waterfall. He had to shoot in his spin around or somersault, he had to shoot Farnsworth, Tim Thomas, was. and so, you know, luckily Bob Brown, at this point, his shoulder had healed and he could do this, and he was, he's a high diver, he, you know, he's one of those people that dive, like in shows, dives in shows, or, you know, like Halcapoco, Poco, high, high dives, and they had to be, so he was comfortable. With going airborne, shooting the gun, and then completing this flip around, and then diving down at the base of, and falling into the water at the base of this waterfall. It's kind of scary, you know, because you don't know the rocks are slippery near the edge, and but it worked out, and, and Bob was very confident, and um, I don't remember who or, uh, doubled uh, Merrill's character Max Impact for that, but they were just all superb, and you know nobody ever complained or anything, and. Um, It was a pretty smooth shoot. The only person that complained was really that one producer I had the issues with. But luckily Ash Shaw supported me all the way, and, and so it worked out. fall Then they go to the, to run across the volcano, to the top of the volcano where they meet up with Yuji Okamoto's flying a jet, and that leads into the final sequence, which is going to be a stop motion sequence by Gene Warren. And uh, I wanted it to be a throwback uh, sequence of fighting. But I didn't really want him. I wanted to fight a skeleton robot like in the Sinbad films that I had seen when I was a kid that very Harryhausen did. And so we designed it as a stop-motion martial arts fight. As, you know, it's like really the first uh, martial arts fight done by stop-motion characters versus a live human. And um, I thought it came across pretty good. But I know there's been a lot of criticism that it doesn't look that great. But I don't know. I was really happy. It was really a hard scene to for Gene Warren and Fantasy Two, who'd done all you know, did Terminator Two, and this was as hard as anything they did. So. On that movie, so I knew that it was a challenge and was not easy to do. But you know, I think it worked out pretty good. Um, I don't think there was, uh, you know, in shooting it there wasn't, certainly wasn't that much difficulty. And then you know the whole thing where Alex is hanging onto Farnsworth's skeleton outside the plane was crazy, and they or it rips off. I think his head gets caught on a, a piece of. Uh, outcropping of cropping on the metal door in the ship as he fell, and it ripped off the top half of his scalp of uh, Alex's scalp, revealing the the um, you know metal cybergenic part of him. And yes, you know, I thought the whole thing was really cool. And that the aerial shot with the background plate know. behind them during that scene was shot from a helicopter above the erupting volcano of Kilauea in Hawaii. And um, it was done by LA camera crew, but what was, was interesting is because there was a film called I think Black Widow that shot after us on the Big Island, and uh, Teresa Russell and everyone here, I think, and anyway, they needed some helicopter shots of that volcano, so since this cameraman and his assistant had just done it, they hired them to do it on the same helicopter pilot, except this time, they met with some bad luck and they crashed inside the volcano. Luckily, not you know in the lava flow, and uh, they had to climb out of the uh, volcano. I think the pilot was injured pretty severely. Uh, I don't I don't really remember because like I say, it was on another movie. So, but it was interesting that was my crew that basically was hired to shoot it. People saw the footage from that they had the, uh, for
1: Nemesis, an so anyways, all
0: kind of weird things like that going on, and uh, anyway, I didn't get along with uh, the first AD, which came to a head really during this uh, part of the shooting in Elo because, you know, we just didn't see eye to eye, in my mind, I'm always trying to be as aggressive as possible. And even if something's planned, if I see something better, I'm going to change it and go for something better. If the weather changes, the light changes, just so I can keep shooting. And, right, of course, it drove well. the A.D. crazy because, you know, be shooting unscheduled scenes, unscheduled okay. locations. And, and I was moving so fast that, you know, it just hey, left a, a trail behind yeah, me of, of uh, confused crew and cast. Wow. But, you know, we had to be aggressive. Wow. We didn't have much money. We didn't have much time. So... We had to take some risk and me? and you try to get much as much on screen as we could. So, like I say, the actors are very experienced. A lot of them had worked with me before, so there wasn't any real issues with that that aspect of of my shooting. But the AD and I, who is now a big producer, um, did not see eye to eye at all, and we got into a lot of arguments all the time. And, Eventually, his second, who I liked and who I used as a first later on, I kind of did all my communication with the second, and the first AD just melted down, was really upset and insulted and felt that he was being humiliated because the second assistant director was now basically running the show. But hey, you know, my job is to keep things going, and if he wouldn't do it, and was objecting and slowing me down, that I had to go past him and get the next person in line, okay, okay. have him step up, so we can keep going. And um, anyway, that was that was some of yeah. the politics of of shooting, the- <clears> you know, in the union situations. Um,
1: It's not over, Alex. There are many more of us. More than you can terminate. But I've been doing a pretty damn good job of it. Haven't I, Germaine? It's amazing what a tech retard can do. When he really puts his mind to it. And that's what I've done. I put my mind to it. Let me go. And I'll tell you what you need to know to find Tubor. I don't think you have anything I want to know, Jermaine. Alex. Please. You know you were right about my dirty deals. What? What? Deals? People die, Jermaine.
0: So, um, anyway, then we, you know, we, we went back to LA and we finished up with LA, where uh, when Alex catches up with Julian, Nicholas Cass' character, and, and you know, outside the uh, LAPD headquarters and and uh, blows them apart. Alex, and then you have know, the ending the scene you this, most uh, with. Um, if you are reading- max you and alex going to continue their quest to grown up uh, get rid of or Jared stop the cyborg conspiracy out, so and um aliens, it was pretty simple and at and that point alex, we, was, we started doing the uh a uh, rough cut was being and assembled while we were shooting world, uh when we were done shooting it and got really going, going in earnest and literally the minute i finished the rough cut Assembly, which was around midnight, uh, that producer, the one I've been fighting with all through the film, was in the editing room. So, primarily because he knew that we were going to finish the assembly. The minute we finished the assembly, he said, Well, that's your director's cut. Thank you very much. You can go now. now, And he dismissed me and took away the film. And anyway, so. That was a drag, and the um, the editors Conte were really nice. Uh, it's Mark Conti and uh, David. Uh, they were just really sweet guys, and they were as horrified, as a, you know, that that the film was being taken away from me like this. And I think they had an inkling that it might what was going to happen. I don't know if they re- really really believed that uh, the producer would really do it so callously. So I was not involved any for picking the music for the film, which I did not like. Uh, I did not care for the score that Michelle Rubini did. I'm sure, you know, I clearly, he's very talented, but it wasn't really what I was hearing. And Tony Ripperetti, who was the original composer I, I wanted on the film, had already done some temp cues that we were actually editing to and were great. And it's a bummer that Tony didn't get hired to continue and finish uh, you know, his work. Anyway, so that was a, it was a tough moment and a very bitter moment for me to be removed. And then, anyway, he so he had the producer took over the film and edited it, you know, he got back at me. so. And then the worst thing was we shot in 235 widescreen, and he made sure that all of the mastered versions of the film were either 1 or, 8 or either. 133, which is the normal, you know, sort of the square, uh, old style television look. Or he uh, made it just 185 as the widest one. And never, never uh, creating a master with a 235 widescreen look. Just to show me that, see, he shouldn't have shot widescreen anyway. Which nobody's ever going to see it. You know, it's a drag. It's a beautiful imagery created by George Moradian and um, Mark Moore in the Steadicam. It gets lost when those, cro- those frames are cropped tighter. And, anyway, so that's, that's my story of nemesis. I hope you enjoyed this commentary. I was sick through part of this. That's so why my voice has changed a little bit. But um, I hope you liked it and uh, it was informative. Thank you.